0: Already right, three, two, one. We're back. All right. This is the last episode of 2020. It was a really long year, um, but I guess like other years, it went by quickly. It felt like in March. It felt like yesterday we were just hearing about the news they were getting shut down, and now all of a sudden it's New Year's Eve of 2021. Today I'm joined by President Julie Woolman. Hello. How you Hi. Doing? Good to be with you. Yeah, good to be first of all it's really good to just see you and talk to you um one-on-one because i know you i mean you must be deprived not seeing your students like um every day um so how's, that really been for you? Yeah. Yeah. how's it been for you
1: well you know it's been it has been tough because the reason that i love working at a university is the interaction with the students and the were constant reminder of why we're there and what our purpose is so you know, you see students on campus. You walk through buildings. You hear classes going on. You meet with students about a variety of things, um, and not having that, it's like that's what we're all about. And so it's been it's been really hard not to have that connection. And a couple times through this, my husband has said to me, "Like, you're going to be so much happier when you're back with the students." Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um not that I haven't been happy but just it you know that's really what that's what keeps me going and the relationships with the with the faculty and staff so it's been tough but I'm I'm really grateful that we have the technology that allows us to connect in in some ways
0: Yeah I think yeah we were talking a little bit beforehand people are definitely adjusting um it's not the same obviously but you know like life's going to throw things at you and I think people are being very um, adaptable and they're being resilient. And I think that we're making the most of it and that's what's most important. Um, so today's episode is a little bit special. One, because President Wilma is joining us Two because she has n- nothing to do with STEM field research. Um, <laughs> she got her background um, at Harvard University in um, American literature, English and language and then got her eventually got a PhD in education. So this is entirely switch up from what I usually do in STEM field. But I'm excited to talk to you today. I know that our viewers are definitely excited as well. I think maybe we should start with like you know where you're from and like you know your your come up, uh, President Woman. So I don't know if you want to start there.
1: Absolutely. So I am from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I was born in in Philadelphia and grew up um, in in Philadelphia, and then my family moved into the suburbs and then actually moved back into to Philadelphia when I was in college. Um, when I finished college at Harvard, as you mentioned, I came back to Philadelphia and got my master's degree at Penn and I lived in, um, actually first lived in the Fairmount section and then lived in, in West Philly. So when I was born, my family lived in Germantown and then eventually um, moved into Center City. So I've kind of lived around the, the Philadelphia area. Um, I moved to New York City for my um, PhD and then moved to Boston and worked there for 20 years. And that's where both of my daughters were born. So that's what they think of as home. Um, But they also visited grandma and grandpa in Philadelphia um, a number of times when my my mother and father lived here. So um, yeah, so I'm back home in Philadelphia after, being away for more than 20 years which is Mm -hmm. which is wonderful and I love the city of Philadelphia I feel like it's a city that has everything that big cities that I've lived in I've lived in Philadelphia New York City and Boston and I like them all but Philadelphia is by far my favorite Mm -hmm. it has all the wonderful things about a city and it also has a little bit of grittiness a little bit of um uh you know maybe it's yeah it's like you know people don't take things for granted they work hard for what they want and and they're really committed and they really want to make it a better city and i feel like that that continues before we started we were talking about my work on the the philadelphia chamber board and there's a lot of other work i do that is really as part of the network of people really trying to improve our city and our and our region constantly and if you're not constantly trying to improve you're just going to get worse i mean that's just you know you got to be working on improvement all the time so Mm. i'm really happy to be back in philadelphia it's home for me so it it feels comfortable it's good to be back and and see um i've been back out it'll be five years in a couple weeks that i've been at widener so Mm. um it's, it, I've been back a while, um, but it's, it's, and it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, I, I have friends who obviously grew up in Philadelphia that I know at Widener, and I think one of the common denominators, I think anyone who actually grows up in Philadelphia, not like in the suburbs, like I'm talking like in Philadelphia, is there, they are the personification of working hard, um, and so like whatever that underlying thing is, it's, it always comes back to just being a hard worker. Um and mm-hmm. I think and like you said, I mean Philadelphia it's like a tough city and it's not I don't know if that's a bad I mean, people from other cities may think <laughs> that's bad, but if you're from the area, you know it's you're just tough and and that's okay. And so mm-hmm. Philadelphia has its has its great perks. Are you a big Eagles fan, Sixers? You all that I'm a
1: or? Sixers fan, yeah. I'm 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 a I, I love basketball. I I always have, so as a sport to watch, that's probably my favorite.
0: How are you feeling about this season?
1: Well, you know, the Philadelphia teams haven't been doing quite <laughs> as well as they did when I was younger um, at times. Um, and these, the, the sports season now is just so bizarre, you yeah. know, with the, the bubble or not the bubble and um, how things have been played without fans. It's it's. Um, it's like everything else in the pandemic it's Mm -hmm. it's it's different we figured out a way to do it it's not ideal i'm more concerned about the season for our own athletes at widener honestly at this point and getting them back into into practice because it's such an important aspect of of what they do Um, before we started i was telling you i never I do anything, the first thing I do in the morning is I get up and I work out. Like I don't do anything till I've worked out. Like you need that physical activity. It's it's it, it not only keeps you healthy physically, but it keeps you. It's important to your mental health too. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I think we've really really missed on campus is the opportunity for our, our student athletes to. Yeah. To do their thing and, and that's true with any activity that our students
0: do yeah it's really i mean it is really unfortunate because i mean you you know it but i you know i have friends who are student athletes and you know they eat sleep and breathe like their sport and they love it and then they basically they got it taken away from them um yeah and, you know it's like well what can you really do and they meet they miss that camaraderie of the teams um and you know working out by yourself is not the same as getting in the gym with all your you know your teammates right,
1: right. definitely yeah. not we're gonna get back to it, though. I mean, we're mm. you know we've got a really good plan with testing for this spring to yeah, get people good. back into at least to workouts. Whether or not the conference competes mm. um, is not our decision alone. Although I am on the executive board of the athletic conference, but I have only one vote. So <laughs> um, you know, but I, that's my hope is that we're we're back into some some level of competition, especially for our spring athletes, because they truly had no, this would be a second year for yeah. them without competition.
0: Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed and, you, yes. know, we'll, you know, that's all we can do. So, yes. okay, so you, you went to Harvard for your undergraduate in English, American literature and language. Can you enlighten us on this, on your decision to pursue that? Real quick, I think the only piece of American literature I've ever read is The Great Gatsby, if that's considered literature. Is it, that, is. It, it is. It is
1: considered.
0: Good. <laughs> it would really good too.
1: <laughs> Although it's it's not it's not my favorite aspect of American literature, but um, but um, so yeah, I have always loved reading and writing. Mm. And um, when I went to college, I didn't think I was going to major in English. I thought I was going to major in um, politics and or political science. Um, and I wanted to be a lawyer. And you know, being a lawyer would have been a, an interesting fit for me because I like to construct arguments, I like to write. Those are important skills in law. But um, I, like many undergraduates, did not have really great advising. So I assumed, and I mean, you think about coming into college as a freshman you don't know what all the options are, um, and. I assume that if you want to be a lawyer, you have to major in political science. Like that, I didn't realize that you could, you know, and that in fact, law schools love people who major in philosophy or English or whatever. But Mm. in any case, I did not like my political science classes. That's because they were not taught by Wagner political science professors who are amazing. And I love, I actually love participating at all, at everything they do and hearing all the the um, research projects and, and the work that they do. But I, t- I ended up taking classes as a freshman, like the theory of war and that kind of thing. And I was like, I am not interested in this. So um, and I, I realized what I really wanted to do was be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I decided, you know, I liked my English classes. I wanted to major in English and I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and the reason for that is really because of teachers that I had, honestly. I mean, and I think this is something I think relates to why I like Widener and why I chose Widener as, as a place to, um, to um, spend, you know, this in really the, the um, height and hopefully end of my career. Um, if I'm, you know, I'm, if they're long enough. Um, is because of the commitment to teaching and the the value that's placed on teaching. Um, And so I knew that good teachers made a huge difference. And I had some wonderful teachers um, in high school and I wanted to be like them. And honestly, when I was in college, I had a lot of not very good teachers. They were very smart people. They, were, they did great research, but they, they weren't be. as committed to teaching and they weren't as interested in working with undergraduates. So I absolutely decided I wanna be a teacher and I wanna make a difference that way. So I majored in English. I will tell you that there was a point when I was not very happy with my major, not because I didn't like what I was reading, but because sometimes you can ruin something you're reading by having to overanalyze it. And I felt like you couldn't enjoy it as much sometimes when you were analyzing it um, so deeply. But part Mm -hmm. of that was because I don't think we were really taught how to connect the literature to our own lives and, and make sense of it that way. It was more like figure out what the author was trying to say. Mm -hmm. Newer approaches to literature focus much more on how does this connect to your experience and what does it mean to you? It's an interaction between what the author was saying and what the reader, the sense that the reader makes of it, but that really wasn't a, a focus in my program. In any case, when I graduated, I knew I wanted to be a teacher, and interestingly, a lot of my classmates and my own mother and father and many others told me that was a mistake that it was a waste of my education to become a teacher and i should do something where i would make more money and (laughs) um something that would be like more the traditional like be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever um and um but I was always a little rebellious and I knew what I wanted to do and so that's what I did I went into um I started as a teacher and I got my master's degree in education at Penn while I was teaching and um I was very very happy with that then I was encouraged to get my doctoral degree and with my doctoral degree I started thinking about, I'd really like to be a professor. I'd like to teach teachers. I'd like to work with people who work in schools. Mm-hmm. And that's what I ended up doing. Um, so I, I became a, a professor, just like your you know professors. Um, and I taught undergraduate students as well as students in masters and um, doctoral programs in um, in education. And I really loved that. I loved teaching. I loved the research I was doing, which is on writing. Um, And um, I loved writing and publishing my, my work. I really enjoy writing. But as often happens when you're good at something people ask you to do something else which is kind of weird (laughs) but a very common phenomenon you're really good at this let's have you do something different so i was asked to become a a associate dean um and you know just try it for a year or two and see what you think and so eventually i I became interested and and the dean's job opened and i became a dean and then i became a provost and um yeah so i kind of was on this path that wasn't at all intended. A lot of times, people say, "Did you always want to be a university president?" No. <laughs> I, I don't
0: want. think anyone has that in their mind. Like, I'm going to be university president one day. Like,
1: I know. I it's like, like what kid wants to be a university president? It's not even a job that I thought about that I even knew would be a yeah would be an option. So. Um, but yeah, it, it turned out, I mean, a lot of times people say, what can you do with an English major? I'm a good example of that. There's a lot of, a lot of good examples of that. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's how, I, um, that's how I got there. It was really choosing something I really was interested in and that I thought would help me get to what I wanted to do when I graduated.
0: I kind of want to ask you this, cause I mean, like when I was a senior, I guess junior year of high school, you know, senior, or whatever you start looking at universities and colleges and, you know, people are always like Harvard, Yale, they're all MIT, they're all the top. Is Harvard like really all that? Like is, it like, 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 is it like really what people say it is? Like, it's like the top of the top?
1: Well, I guess it depends on what you mean when you say the top of the top. So does it have amazing professors? Yes. Are they doing cutting edge research in every area? Yes. Did I have classes as a freshman with incredible people whose lectures were, you know, really fantastic? Yes, I did. Um, Did I have opportunity? I mean, I was living in the residence halls with all these really bright people, really, you know, thoughtful, great conversations, but that happens at every college and university. Um, What a large university like that is lacking, I think, is the attention to undergraduates that you get at a place like Widener mm. or a small any other smaller school, really. But Widener, I think, does it among the very best, which is the attention to students, to undergraduate students, getting to know them as a professor, um, you know, really helping them navigate what they want to do. I think I definitely, I mean, I talked a bit earlier about not getting great advising. I think that that was a, that was a challenge. Now, my younger daughter went to Harvard and she graduated, I think now it's four years ago, four, four and a half years ago. Yeah, I can't believe that. <laughs> my baby, um, her experience was completely different because they had come, I think education, higher education came to this rec- recognition that you gotta pay more attention Undergraduates and find ways to better support them. So she was a peer advising fellow. So she, they had developed this peer advising program where, she, you know, so you didn't have as much advising still from the professors, but there was more support built in in, in the way that, that Widener tries to do it. Um, so, you know, there was a, you know, you build a network. One of the things people talk about with college is, is building a network. So, yeah, you build an incredible network. Um, at Harvard, Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts is an incredible place to go to school. I mean, I still love it there. Um, So there's some really fantastic things, fantastic museums are right on campus, fantastic opportunities, but for an undergraduate experience, I would say it's not the ideal undergraduate experience in terms of support quality of education is you know is is very very good um and you know it depends too on what area you're in so you're in engineering my younger daughter is an engineer as well she's majored in mechanical engineering she's she does aerospace engineering now um but um so she had a little bit more maybe hands on because more labs and that kind of thing with um but not always with professors which with graduate assistants with teaching assistants, you know, so not as much connect connection to the professors. Yeah, I think
0: I and I think you've done a really good job taking that knowledge of what you learned in undergrad, where maybe your professors aren't really paying attention to you. Um, and change and like turning that into here a wider. I mean, heck, I even just sent you an email the other day saying, hey, would you like to come on my podcast? And then you responded the same day. And that really kind of shows your attentive attentiveness to your undergraduate students. So I know I really appreciate that. And, you know, I know you also, I guess they're called town halls or those where you go sit in and you listen to undergraduate students, or I don't exactly know how they work out, but, you know, you really listen to your undergraduate students. And, you know, I, I smile and I laugh when people are like, oh, president woman doesn't even know what's going on here. Like she does like, you know, and I just, I just chuckle. And it's like, you don't, you don't even know the half of it. So I, I I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So you graduated from Harvard. Um, then you got, your, you got your master's degree in elementary education at Penn, at University of Penn, and then you got your PhD in education at New York University. So obviously that's a pretty big shift, I would think, right? So you got your master's degree in elementary education. Did you want to be an elementary school teacher or was that kind of just what was I all? I was
1: actually teaching elementary school at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I came back to Philadelphia and um, I was teaching elementary school and I realized I needed to know more. I needed to understand more. I, I had taken some graduate courses in education when I was at Harvard, when I was a senior, um, because I knew I wanted, to, I wanted to be a teacher, but they didn't have any courses for people who wanted to teach at that point. That also changed over time. Um, so um, I knew I just didn't know enough and I needed to know more to be a better teacher. So that's why I started the master's program um, in order to learn and, and grow um, as a teacher. And my professors there, who I got to know very well, were the ones who encouraged me and said, you have, you should get a doctorate, you have you know, great potential, and, and you should um, think about becoming a, a faculty member at a, at a, at a university. So, um, but yes, that's what I was doing at the time when I got my master's, as I was teaching um, elementary school. and, and it, my favorite grade to teach actually was sixth grade, which was then not middle school. Middle school yeah. was seventh and eighth, but I know in some schools now <laughs> that's changed. Uh, so yeah, I loved, I loved teaching that age. A lot of people say they don't like teaching adolescence and sixth grade is horrible. And I was like, I loved it. I love kids that age. I, think um, I love the- like any age, really.
0: Yeah. I think the, well, it kind of depends on what school you go to, but like the fourth through sixth, I think is the most, well, okay. So in some elementary schools, it goes up to fourth grade. So like, they're like old enough. They're like mature enough to behave like really like well, but they're young enough that they're still elementary school kids. But I guess if it goes to sixth grade, it's even better. They're more mature, but they're not quite at that puberty level yet. So I think that's a good. Exactly. That is
1: exactly what I love about it. They were mature enough you weren't dealing with like little behavioral issues or whatever, which, you know, is fine. You can deal with that. But, and they were, they were mature enough that they like understood my jokes and that kind of thing, yeah. but they were still kids, you know? They So yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um,
0: I have friends who are, um, I guess, special education and early education majors, um, either at Widener or like in other schools. And I'm always fascinated by the stuff that they learn because it, there is so much that goes into like elementary education. Like you, you may think it's, it's like, oh, elementary school, like whatever, but no, like um, there is so much behavioral science that goes into teaching young children, um, you know, and there's so many different techniques to That's help. Right. Them. So right. something that right. I learned the other day is, and we know a lot more about children now than we did, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years yeah. ago. Yeah. But, you know, one of the big things now is, you have like these sections in elementary school where, ch- or like let's say you're in a classroom and children can choose how they want to sit. So like, so like there's a section where you have yoga balls or like you have these high chairs or like you mm-hmm. have like, desks and like mm-hmm. it's a technique where you kind of keep them engaged and they can kind of fidget, I guess, but they're still paying right. attention.
1: Because if you think about it, one of the biggest challenges for a lot of kids is sitting still at their desk in a classroom. And if you ever went and sat in a, in like a fourth grade classroom, if you went and sat in the back of a fourth grade classroom right now, assuming it was in person and we were in normal times, um, it's boring after no matter what the teacher's doing, like you get bored, you need to move, you need to, you know, I mean, you're sitting in that room all day. Yeah. The subject may change or whatever. Maybe you get to go out to recess or for gym, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's great to think about sort of the, the physical needs of, of kids and how we keep them engaged. But there's also so much research and theory on how children learn language, and which is what I'm really interested in, how they learn language, how they learn to read, how they learn to write, how they learn to adapt their language in different settings which is so important, as you know, the way you talk when you hang out with your friends isn't how you talk in a job interview. Right. I mean, you know, you've got to learn to make those shifts. You're not born knowing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not born knowing how to write in different genres. Scientific writing is very different from creative writing, is very different from writing a persuasive letter. And so there's just a norm. And then if you think about the number of children who hate math and science, so you're in a STEM field, But you know, there's a lot of kids who just think they can't do STEM. They can't, and they decide that very young because it's not taught effectively. And there, I mean, everybody can understand STEM. They're not all gonna become engineers. They're not gonna be like you, but there's no reason to think that there's something about like fourth grade math that everybody can understand. So a lot of it comes down to how it's taught and how effectively it's taught and expectations.
0: Yeah. So I, I appreciate all of our, all of our elementary school teachers out there really killing it right now. Um, that, and plus just the sheer patience of them, I don't have the patience to teach elementary education. Like I'm, I'm just sorry. That's just not me, but I appreciate the people that do.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so then you went to, um, New York university to get your PhD in education. So what led you to that decision? Um, and, Can you tell us a little bit about your graduate student experiences, some of your favorite experiences?
1: Um, So really, I never thought about getting a Ph.D. until my professors in my master's program encouraged me to. Mm. And so I, you know, that's really why I started to think about it and look into it. And then I realized I really, I really admired them. And I was like, I'd like to be like them. I'd like to be teaching in a university and, and teaching people who want to go into education. So it was really... You know, so many steps in my life and my career were people telling me like, you should consider this or you could do this or you have the talent to achieve this. There, It's not, so often I think people think like they have to know what they're going to do and they have to um, uh, have it all planned out. And for most people, that's not the way it works. You have, I mean, you have a sense of what you want to do and then opportunities open up. And people see talent in you and they give you further opportunities. And you grow with that. And I mean, you take some risks. You might think, well, I'm not sure I can do that, but I'm gonna everyone else thinks I can. So I'm gonna give it a try and work really hard. You know, a lot of it is comes down to how hard you work and that commitment um, to, to doing your, your absolute best, no matter what. Um, so yeah, so, but I was encouraged to go into a doctoral program and I, I really enjoyed it. I, while I was in the program, I was, um, I had a couple graduate assistantships to help pay for it. Um, so I was doing some work in the New York city public schools. I was doing some research and also some professional development work, which is, was very, very challenging because we were in the worst performing schools in, in New York city. That was the, you know, that was the, the, that was the project I was working on. Um, but it was a, you know, it was really an incredible experience and, you know, probably the, you know, some of the most amazing things that happened were, you know, professors who encouraged me to, you know, take something I was working on and write an article and send it in for publication and see what happened or, you know, present at conferences. And, uh, you know, I began to realize I can, I can do this and I learned how to, read, uh, one of the things I think is is really tough when you're in graduate school is the reading, the research reading is is hard and it's a different, again, a completely different genre. You're not used to doing that kind of reading and you learn to not only that you you wanna be able to read it but you wanna be able to write that way. Like you start Mm -hmm. to read like a writer and think about how am I going to model my research and publications in this way. So I love to write and um, I still write and I still publish not so much in my field as much more generally about higher education, um, but you know, I, I really like to do that. I also still teach in a couple ways. Um, so one of them is I like to teach freshman seminar at Widener, which I've, I've done, um, my first students, and who I had in freshman seminar, at Widener are seniors now, um, and so they're getting ready to graduate. Um, and um, and it's fun to see some of them like do their senior projects and that kind of thing. Um, as I you know, almost feel like like they're like like I'm another parent or something. Um, and then um, I teach in um, the prison in Chester. I teach at SCI Chester. Um, uh, Reading and writing classes with with a couple other professors where we work together and and split it up. So I'll teach the first module that might be four or five weeks, and then um, you know others. So I do I still do a lot of assigning reading and and re- responding to writing and um, helping people get better at the at the writing that they're doing.
0: Do you work with Dr. Jane Thompson at that prison? Um, I do. Okay, mm-hmm. I just took her class. I guess a class, more of a uh, seminar in um, restorative justice, so.
1: Oh, so you know all about the work we're doing. I know, that, yeah, I know some of the work she was doing in the class, yeah. I didn't know you
0: did that. I kind of want to talk about that a little bit, because that class was absolutely fascinating. It wasn't really a class, but mm-hmm. really yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. those who <laughs> don't know, restorative justice is basically a program where um, prisoners are prisoners are, rehabilitated, restored with through education. So um, instead of basically rotting in a cell and um, they take on college education, they'll get their um, English degree um, or whatever other education there is. And you'll get university professors to come in and they'll read some literature and they'll talk like it's a regular English class. Really fascinating. I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit.
1: So, yeah, so we've done, I mean, education is the most powerful way to reduce recidivism to reduce people getting out and coming back to prison to to reoffending doing whatever they did that you know whether they're it's drug addiction or whatever it is um it truly changes lives and i believe that education is transformative i decided when i was in college i want to be an educator i have spent my career as an educator i if there's anything i believe in this world it's that education makes a huge difference and it is transformative Mm -hmm. and i think it's transformative for our wider undergraduates i think a strong education as you mentioned earlier for younger children is transformative and there's a lot of research that shows this and it's the same thing in prison so i we know that our prisons are full of people who are there because of their race, because of their socioeconomic status, that what they did, had they not lived in the neighborhood they lived in or looked like they looked like or whatever, um, they might, they probably wouldn't be in prison. So, and that, you know, we had this war on crime, several decades ago in our country, and, and, and had this notion that you put people in prison and that's gonna address these problems. It doesn't address the problems. The social problems continue. Um, families where you have an incarcerated parent, the children are very likely to be incarcerated. We have to break the cycle to improve our, our world and to give people opportunities. So that's, the, you know, that's why I love teaching in the prison because I feel like it makes a difference. The men, and it is a men's prison at SCI Chester, are so eager to learn and grow. They're well past whatever they did, um, and and you know ready to to move on and want to take advantage of every opportunity they have to learn. So, we've done courses, um, Doctor, uh, so uh, Professor Thompson, Jane Thompson, as you mentioned. Um, We did a course on poetry um, last, time is so strange now with the pandemic, but that was last fall, I believe. Um, And we're doing a, 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 or last spring rather. And this fall, we just finished a course that we called Writing My Life. And there were three modules. I taught a module focused on this, I believe, essays. So the men read essays, responded to them and then wrote their own essay. Um, Professor Thompson, taught a module on memoir and then we worked with um Dr Brenda Kucerka in nursing who does a lot of inside out classes where we bring wider students together with men in the prison for classes which is not what we're doing right now um and um she taught it uh on the Marshall project and advocacy statements so that was our class the men do a lot of writing every week and they get a lot of feedback um, and it makes a difference. And when they leave, they wanna continue their education and they're getting credit for it. So they're building something that they can take with them.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I can definitely attest to that too because I was someone who took the, the restorative justice class to kind of see what you were talking about mostly because it fit my schedule and because i had to unfortunately that was the re- original reason why i took it right right then by the end of the semester i mean my perspective on education in the prison systems and restorative of justice as a whole completely i mean i, I did a totally totally 180 on this i mean yeah. i used to believe i didn't first of all i didn't know anything about the prison system right so and someone in field, like i don't really pay attention to that kind of stuff unfortunately but then you know, I was just someone that believed that, okay, you did a crime. You're going to go to pay your time and then you're going to get mm-hmm. out. And that's just what I, that's all mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. But then seeing how people, even people in prison, they need attentive. They need attention and they really are, they're eager for education and they're, they're eager to learn.
1: Yes. And I think it, you the other thing that you realize in a class like that, I'm sure, is that a lot of the people who were incarcerated were, um, so impoverished when they were young, many of them, their families literally abandoned them. I mean, left them on a street corner and just said, you know, I can't take care of you or threw them out of a house at age 10 because they couldn't take care of them. They grew up with in families where addiction was the norm, where you know, alcoholism, drug addiction, You, they haven't learned how to be productive and they haven't had the support again, back to this notion of early childhood education and how you learn to trust and grow and, um, and become the person that you, you can be. So I think there's so much that was, that's working against some of these, some of these men, when they have an opportunity, they want to turn their life around and they see that it can be different.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, really good stuff. The, the class is called restorative justice here at Widener. If it fits in your schedule, I definitely recommend looking into it. It'll change your perspective on it. Um, okay. So you graduated from NYU with a PhD in education. I know you've had a lot of positions, but I kind of want to just talk about how the position arose to you to become president of university. Because obviously beforehand, we weren't talking about, oh yeah, I want to be president of university someday. You know, How did that position arise and how did you come to that decision?
1: So, I mean, it's a great question. And I have had a lot of different positions. When my children were young and I had been at the same college for a number of years, and I'd been a professor, an associate dean, I directed the doctoral program, I became the dean. They, they used to say, my mom has had every job at the college, which wasn't true. <laughs> there were many other jobs, but that's what happens as you progress in your, in your career. Um, I never thought I wanted to be a university president or an administrator of any kind. I liked teaching. I liked doing my research. I liked writing articles. I, you know, that's that's what I enjoyed doing. I like working with students. But I was again going back to this theme of somebody saying, like, "Would you try this? This, you know, I think you have the potential to be good at this." And so, over the course of my career, as I was, you know. Um, uh, as a professor and then directing um, the, the doctoral program that I directed, people began to say like, you you should really think about um, higher education leadership. Like you have potential to do some of these roles as a Dean, as a, as a provost. So um, it was really people encouraging me to think about it. Um, it wasn't something that I necessarily intended to do. I think as I got closer to it, so an interesting thing, and this is one of those sort of accidents of, huh, where you know where your office is almost. Again, as I said earlier, you know some of these things aren't all planned out. So when I became the director of the doctoral program, the dean at the time wanted me. He, the doctoral program was very very important. Um, the school of education and and he wanted me to have my office to move my office from my department to the dean's office so i i and it was in the same building but it was downstairs and i didn't want to move my office i and i mean i can't believe this but i actually said i really don't want to move i said that to the dean i don't know (laughs) um and um and he you know i was like i don't know if i want to have my office in the dean's office that doesn't sound good right Uh, So, uh, but in any case, um, I, I, he did, he said, no, you have to, I insist that you move your office down here into the dean's office area. So, okay. So I moved my office down there. Then I started to see what the associate dean and the dean actually did. And I was like, you know, I could do this. And I actually think I could do it better. Like you start to see, like, I would do this this way or you know, ways that you would improve it or whatever. And Mm. that gave me a little bit of insight into the possibility. So when the dean's position opened, I applied for it. And there was a national search, but, you know, I got the position. And then I was encouraged to go to the next step. So a lot of times it's mentors and other people around you who say, you should think about this opportunity or this job, um, because you'd be good at it. Mm. And, a lot of times we don't know that we're gonna be good at something. We don't wanna do anything unless we know we're gonna be really good at it, right? Like, I'm like, well, I'm not sure I have everything I need. So I, so yeah, it's the encouragement of mentors is so important.
0: Yeah, sometimes you gotta take the leap of faith and grow your wings on the way down. That's something that I like to live by, you know?
1: Exactly, exactly. And that's how I became, so this is my second presidency. I was president um, at Edinburgh University before mm-hmm. this. and you know, again, it was people encouraging me, like, you know, you'd be a really good president, you should really think about this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this job is open, you should, you should really consider it. And so it's, yeah, it's people making you think like, hmm, that is something I could consider and mm-hmm. think about.
0: Yeah, that is incredible. because so something you said earlier that I really, I never really thought about, but it, it makes sense is that, um, you know, you have an idea of a path and you kind of know what you, you kind of know what you want to do, but then the opportunities arise as you You know, you take one opportunity, three doors open after that. So that's something that's really, that's really true. Um, I know this is going to be a tough question for you, but I I want, I want you to answer it anyway. What are some of like your proudest moments and favorite moments as, you know, university president? Um, They don't have to be specific, but like, what are some of like your favorite moments?
1: Honestly, my favorite moments are moments like this, when I'm talking with a student and where I have an opportunity to really, you know, share what I'm thinking, hear from, hear from students, um, get a sense of the way you think about things. And um, I mean, just hearing about some of the classes you've taken and how they've had an impact on you. Um, I learned from that and, 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 I, and I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hearing about your experience with this, semester, you know, during this pandemic, before we started the podcast, I really, that's really important to me to understand what's happening for our students and to see the work they're doing. It's why I try to attend all of the research presentations and senior projects that I can, and just really have a sense of what's going on at the university. Mm. Um, Of course, I can't have a sense of everything that's going on at the university because I'm one person and it's a big place and there's a lot going on that's what i that's what i enjoy the most is interacting with our students and our and our faculty and staff so um and that's what i miss the most of course during this pandemic when so little is is in person and when i am on campus everyone's wearing their mask and it's hard to even tell who it is sometimes (laughs) um which we're all experiencing um in our lives and then i think you know the there's other times that are just so exciting and meaningful like commencement I mean people just seeing people who I've seen who have known since they were freshmen um or somebody who might work at university who's in a graduate program and I know you know some of the challenges that they've dealt with along the way and seen them go through all the years of their program and then they come across the stage and get their diploma it's just you know um it's exciting to see, and you feel like I feel proud of them. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not their parent, I'm not their, you know, family member, but I feel proud because I know what they did and how hard they worked to get to where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's really why people are in college, you know, at a university in a in an undergraduate or graduate program is to to get that degree, to get to the end, and to move to the next step. So
0: yeah, no, I I can definitely attest to that. Um, you know, one of my favorite moments was before COVID summer 2019. It was the crew leaders, the RA, and I think some, I forget who else was there, but we're all at your house in your swimming pool. Like, we're all just hanging out and, you know, you really care about the students, I think. And I, this kind of leads into the next question, you know, what are some of the biggest misconceptions is that, you know, people are, I guess some people are like afraid to speak to you because you are like the president of the university. And it's like, you're just a person too. Um, and like, you care about us. And so... Do you think that there are other misconceptions or do you think that's probably the biggest one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think there probably are people who think of the president as kind of a figure and not a person. And and I think that that's, you know, that's pretty common with any organization. People look at the person who leads the organization, um, the CEO of any organization, and just sort of like, well, they're up there somewhere. They don't know what's going on. They're not connected day to day. And maybe in some cases that is true. That's not the way I work. That's not the way I lead. But, um, I think people forget you're a person. And sometimes that, um, results in, in, um, these misconceptions that you, you know, like you don't care about something. You, you might have to make a decision that people don't like. And it's like, well, you don't understand and you don't care. Actually, you're a person you do understand. You do care. I mean, we were talking before we started. I'm also a mom, <laughs> um, so I understand what it's like to go through college. And as a as a parent, um, I'm 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 not far from that at all. I've been through all of this myself. Um, I was telling you, my very good friend has a son who's a freshman now, and what his experience has been like having to be completely remote at his college, which isn't Widener, but so you know. I, I think that people forget that you're a person, mm-hmm. and that you do understand what it's like to to live in the world and 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 um, deal with all the issues. Um, but I also think that because of the you know I'm in this role of president, people think somehow I'm distanced or I'm not engaged. But that's just not how I am. I mean, I'm a person who's very engaged in what's happening at the university and I wanna know what's going on um, because I wanna make it better. I mean, that's my job. I wanna I want to make it better. I want it, if something's wrong. I wanna know about it and try to make it better. And I think that people, when they do reach out to me with questions or concerns, know that I'm very responsive and I do really deeply care about making things better. Can I always fix everything? No, but I will not ignore issues or, um, whatever. And I, I really care about the students. I mean, I think that's another thing people don't realize is like, I really, that's really why I'm here. Um, because I, I care about the students and their experience. Again, can I make it perfect? No, <laughs> the world isn't perfect, but I will do my absolute best. Um, yeah. to do that.
0: um, I definitely, I definitely see what you're saying there. Cause like, I mean, I'm president of the infantry council and I really try, like, first of all, I think that I'm an open book if anyone came up to sp- spoke to me, like, or speaks to me, I'm pretty open about anything. I'll talk about anything and everything. And I try to divert my time to the individuals. I'm still learning how to do that. But at some point I can't like see everyone and I can't, I can't um, fulfill everyone's requests. I can't do it, um, but I really try to see everything. So right. it, it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And I know you have a meeting at 11, so mm-hmm. last question. What's some advice that you like to give to students?
1: Be open to opportunities. We talked about this earlier. Everyone thinks they have to have a path. They know where they're going. It's good to have plans. Plans are important. You don't want to sort of randomly wander through life. Um, And that's why you're going to college is because you're making plans. But be open to opportunities. Don't hold yourself back, be willing to take risks. We talked about that earlier that, you know, I'm not sure I I can do this, but I'm willing to try. Um, Be open, be willing to take risks, always do your best. If you don't do well, or if you fail at something, what you wanna be able to do is say, in my mind, what I wanna be able to do is say, I did my best. Mm. If I did my best, I'm gonna be satisfied. Um, and I think that's how people have to think about what they do because otherwise there are times when you, when you don't do well, there are times when you fail, there are times when you take a risk and it doesn't work out. Do your best, that's all you can do and move on and opportunities will keep, um, will keep occurring for you.
0: Yeah, for sure. I tell people all the time, like, look, if you can look yourself in the mirror and, and you say, I tried my best, I think that's definitely all I ever ask for out of people, whether I have people with positions below me. If you can look at me in the eyes and say, I did my best. That's all I've ever asked of anyone. Um, Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: So President Wolman, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I really appreciated your time. Um, And I know the viewers are definitely going to love to hear this one. Um,
1: Great. Well, it was really a pleasure. I enjoyed talking with you. You asked some great questions, Aiden, and I wish everyone the absolute very best for 2021 mm-hmm. and um, looking, as we said at the beginning, towards a fall of 21 that looks like more normal what we're used to.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Hopefully this, this vaccine works. All right, yeah. everyone. Thank you again for listening. This is episode 17. Make sure you like and subscribe if you like the content. But until next time, we'll see you in 2021. <laughs> All right, everyone.